0: Hallelujah in the presence of my enemies.
1: All right. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Glad that you guys are here, or good evening, or good afternoon, or wherever you are online catching us. Glad that you guys are here. Um, We are so blessed that you take the time to join us. Again, wherever you are online catching us. It's always a blessing just to know that people are are hearing and receiving the Word of God and are joining us in what we do. But it's a little something special, at least it is in my heart, when you take the effort to come out and join us here in person. So shout out to you guys. I know every single thing we do these days has like these extra layers or multiple layers of difficulty onto them. Just running to the store or errands or anything we do just seems harder these days, harder in many ways than it needs to be, but we're not going down that road here today. Um, but it does mean something to me that you guys came out, so I'm glad, starting to see the sanctuary fill up just a little bit more, um, so I, I appreciate that. We are in a series called Treasar, which means um, the 12, in this case the 12 Minor Prophets, Now, if it's been a while since you've joined us and maybe you've missed some of the previous messages, you can go back to uh, Facebook, YouTube, Uh, we have a YouTube channel, or even just through our website, discoverycommunity.church, and you can catch the message archives there. Uh, But I recommend that you do that. Go through and catch up on just the Minor Prophet series at least, because I haven't found a whole lot in Scripture that is so much more pinpoint accurate to talk about what we're going through in the world these days. All of the turmoil and all of the just the craziness that comes our way every single day, the temptation is to think, oh, it's it's never been this bad before. But the word of God tells us that yeah, it pretty much has always been like this in one way or another, which is why it's so important that we keep our mind and our eyes focused On where it needs to be. I was having a conversation with with somebody between services, and I was reminded of this training. Driver's Ed talks about it. Uh, In Pilots training that I took, they talk about it. It says, When you see an obstacle, don't focus on that obstacle, because if you do, one thing is guaranteed you're gonna hit that obstacle without failure. So, our job as Christians, especially, is to keep our eyes focused on Christ, and where we are going, not at the obstacles in front of us. Because the more we focus on those obstacles, the larger they loom in our windshield until eventually, bam, like a bug on a windshield, that's where we find ourselves. And it's always been that way. We need to focus on the things of God, right? That's where we need to stay focused. Now, I did this last service. This is a this, totally doesn't go with the flow of what I'm talking about, but this has been a difficult week for me in terms of following where I thought I should go. Every time I have in my mind, here's what I think I'm doing, the Lord then stirs that up and changes it around and presents something different. And the hardest thing for me is to just let go of where I thought I was going and follow where he wants me to go. This message is the result of that for sure. Pastor Gabe said I was so excited about it. And last night I was like jittery because I was so excited about delivering this message. But it also manifests in other ways. So I want to just throw this out here. For the last few weeks, um, month or more really, I've been praying about where our next teaching is going to go. So we only have one more. Uh, we have one more message in, in Zechariah and then we'll do Malachi maybe for a week or two weeks. But then after that, what's next? And we're praying about what goes next. Now, a month ago, the Lord put something in my heart and said, this is where I want you to go. And I was solid, and I said, this for sure, that's where we're going. Then, a couple weeks ago, I started having some second thoughts. I'm like, well, maybe we'll switch it up, and maybe we'll do this. And then the last 24 hours, really, the Lord has been just grabbing me by the collar and bringing me back to the original thing. And what that is, originally, the Lord had put on my heart to do our next teaching series in the book of Job. Okay? Old Testament book of Job. But a deep dive into that, which is going to take some time. It's going to be significant. But I can't think of a book in all of Scripture that talks more about perseverance through trial. And that's what better message, other than the gospel message of Christ, what more practical message could there be than how to persevere in the face of a trial? That's what Job is. Then, of course, I start having these second guesses like, well, maybe I should lighten it up a little bit. Maybe we should do the epistles or something New Testament. That's still out there, by the way, but that's an argument between that's going on in my mind and in my heart. The reason I bring all this up is if you're here or if you're online, wherever you are, I'd love to hear your feedback. Do you want a deep dive into an Old Testament book of Scripture like Job that's very much perseverance or something maybe a little bit lighter, but we're still going to go deep even if we do, the New Testament epistles? So I just want to hear your feedback. Ultimately, I'm going where the Lord leads me, but I'd like to hear how many people I'm going to make angry and how many people I'm going to alienate if I go the other way. I'd just like to know that in advance. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. But this week, this week we are firmly in the Tre Asar, the 12, the 12 minor prophets who had these messages which were just so appropriate and pinpointing where these people were. In this case, the tribe of Judah or the nation of Judah, where they were at this time and place and the things they went through. And it's so amazing to see how appropriate that is to where we are today. We always think, again, everything is unprecedented, but nothing is unprecedented. So last week, where we were, again, last week, we were in uh, Zechariah, and we were talking about these visions that he was being given by the Lord. And and he's going in depth on what these visions are, but basically it all boils down to this. The nation of Judah wanted all the privileges and rights that go along with being God's chosen without the responsibility of having to live their lives that way. Follow me here. They wanted, they wanted, they knew full well that, that they were promised in Scripture that they were God's chosen people. They knew full well, we are God's chosen, and therefore we, we're always going to be good with the Lord, right? But then they wanted to take all these aspects of the cultures around them and incorporate those into their daily lives, In other words, they wanted their lives to look like everybody else's lives while still being God's chosen. We cannot be God's chosen and live the fullness of the life that he wants for us and still live our lives like we're a part of the world. We just can't do it. So this is where we are. Now, they were told that the Messiah would soon come to bring permanent Everlasting peace. This was the promise at the end of of last week's scripture. The Messiah is coming, and when he does, there will be finally everlasting peace. And this is what we see. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. This is from last week. It says, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. This is talking about once and for all when, when the time, the day of the Lord, Scripture keeps referring it to. We talk about the millennial rule of Christ. This is what it's talking about. And at that time, the office of king and the office of priest will be one and the same under Jesus Christ. And in that time will be the peace. That's the promise that we're looking for. But they were also told this. In order to receive that promise, in order for that to all come to fruition, really what it takes is your obedience You need to be obedient to the things that the Lord is telling you, and that's all. Don't add a bunch of things to it. Don't take things away. Just be obedient. That's what the Lord wants, because he wants nothing more than to pour out his blessings on us. We do have a part to play in that. And we're told this, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 15, again from last week. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. It's just that simple. All these things were happening. When it says people will come from far off, that means other nations, not just the Jews there. But nations from all over the world will come to this magnetic light and love that is Christ and the Lord and the temple, they'll come there, but it's going to take your obedience before that happens. That's where it is. Now, sounds very simple, but as it's always been all throughout history, obedience is easier said than done. Am I right? It's easy to know what's supposed to be done, but it's harder to live it. We see that all the time in our lives, and these people are going to need some encouragement because here's what's happening. They have gotten into this place where they're living their lives for show. They're displaying the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God in them, but they're doing it for show. And this is a problem. So we live that very same way. Is the righteousness of Christ in you being manifested in your life? Or are we doing it for show? Here's how to know if it's something that you say, oh, I just did this great thing. I need to get that on social media. Or I have this thought about somebody that's being persecuted. I need to get that on social media. Not that that's all bad. Hear me on this. That's not all bad. But is our impulse to make those things happen, those displays of righteousness? Or do they manifest in us simply because the righteousness of the Lord is in us? It's a fine line there, but it's something we need to be aware of. And I'll show you how this plays out in Scripture through the chapters that we're going to talk about here now. Chapters 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8, which is the, the focus of today's study, They're comprised of four messages, four individual distinct messages that were given by the Lord to the prophet Zechariah, right? And they're given to him in response to a question, really one seemingly innocent question that they're being asked. And this question is asked, and man, it opens up a can of worms, if you're to use a term. So let's go there. The year is 518 B.C., 518 B.C. It's late November, early December, 518 B.C. And the last words from Zechariah, the last prophecy that he delivered was almost two years ago at this point, okay? Almost two years ago. The work on the temple is continuing. It's moving along just fine. They probably got another couple years to go, but they're moving along. The temple's being worked on. And this starts to raise some questions now. Some people are starting to ask, okay, now that the temple is being built, what's next? Now that the temple is almost done, how does that work in our lives for now? These are some questions that are starting to be raised. So let's get into the text, and we'll look at this a little bit closer. So, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. I use the New American Standard, by the way. If you have that version, you want to follow along, I'll read the scriptures to you, or we'll have them on the screen, so you can follow along wherever you are, depending on your version again. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Kislev, just the significance there, it just means the ninth month. It's the Hebrew name for the ninth month. Chapter 7, verse 2. Now, the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. Okay, sounds fairly straightforward at this point. Let's talk really quickly about Bethel and about seeking favor, and who these two guys might be, and their men. So Bethel, if you remember, Bethel is in what used to be known as the northern kingdom. Remember, we had a divided kingdom of Israel. We had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, the southern kingdom, which was Judah. But the northern kingdom had been taken away in captivity and dispersed years ago. Remember the ten lost tribes, they were basically ceased to exist. So what used to be the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, was now pretty much just a, just a, a desolate, no-name kind of, not a wasteland exactly, but it was unkempt and it was kind of wild. It had been a long time since anybody was really taking care of it, and it had started to kind of fall into disrepair. But it was just a region essentially north of, of Judah, which was the southern kingdom, Jerusalem was the, king, was the capital of the southern kingdom. Okay, so that's significant of Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, Bethel in the northern kingdom, or what used to be the northern kingdom now, now the borders were a little bit fuzzier, but it was set up originally as a, an alternate center of worship by King Jeroboam which was the king of the northern territory, because he didn't want all his people to have to travel all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. So he set Bethel up in the northern kingdom as kind of an alternate worship center. The problem is is that he was more of an anything-goes kind of guy, and he allowed uh, worship of, of calves and all kinds of other idolatry to come into that area, so Bethel sort of became known as this center of idolatry, rather than really just worship to the Lord. So that's that's what Bethel's kind of remembered for. But what we see here is men, as King Cyrus. Um, releases the captives, and they're able to return back to their homeland. Scripture talks about very carefully this amount of people went to this place and this place, and they're all coming back to repopulate the towns that they were from, essentially. And Scripture tells us that 223 men returned from captivity to the town of Bethel and began rebuilding the town of Bethel, okay? Their names, their names. Uh, Sherezer and and, and Regimelech mean something specific. Now, those happen to be Assyrian names, and the Assyrian name Sherezer means prefect of the treasury. The name Regimelech means the king's official. So, what does this tell us? What this tells us is that most likely, these were men who were born in captivity. These were probably Jews by heritage. They were Jewish men who were born in captivity in Persia, right? That's where they were born. And the fact that they have these names probably means they had risen to some kind of prominence in that region. They were given responsibilities throughout. And then when they were sent back, now they probably held some kind of a stature there in their town, in their village, which is why it names them and then says, and their men. Right, So they came down, and they're asking a question. It seems like a fairly innocuous question, but they want to seek the favor of the Lord. Seeking the favor is a little, in your translation, depending on what one you have, it might say pray, um, it might say plead, it might say different things. But the word is the same. Seek the favor is a Hebrew word, kala, and it means to become sick in order to soften the face of Now, let me paint a picture of this. It means to to take on this attitude of of weakness, sickness, meekness, not just simply biblical meekness, but you're, you're sick and you're weak, and you're trying to elicit favor so that somebody will help you. Okay, so they come down. The point is they're doing this for show. They come down, and they want to make themselves look weak and pitiful so that we can get some favor from the Lord far from a position of strength. They are trying to put on an air of being desperate. You can read 1 Kings chapter 12 if you want to hear a little bit more about that. It kind of talks about that whole scenario there. But moving on to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, Speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying... Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? That's their question. That is the crux of of why they traveled down. They wanted to ask that question. Now, let's look at this very quickly. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain? That's a a fast and, and mourning. It's a mourning type of a fast, right? And it's not a quiet, private fast, This is one who's very much done openly and loudly, again, for show, for the most part, to show how pious they are and how sad they are over this thing. Now, there have been various fasts that were instituted by God through the whole time in their captivity, even before and even since. God would call a fast, and he would tell the prophets, and they would call a fast. But it was always for a specific time, typically for a specific reason, And sometimes there would be mourning associated with that, absolutely. But the problem is it gets taken from this thing where it's something that God ordained and God called for to where now it just becomes this process. It becomes something we just do out of rote. And we see this over and over again. Let me give you a little example, a couple examples I'll give you on how this works. The prophet Ezra. Prophet Ezra was one of the prophets that was in captivity and he talked an awful lot about rebuilding the temple and things like this. But if you've ever wondered, is the Bible, and I know I've had people ask me this question, and there are a lot of people that think this, that the Bible was just put together by a bunch of people who got in a room and agreed, here are the stories that we're going to tell, and we're going to tell them because we want people to act a certain way. We see that over and over again where people claim that, but you wouldn't have stories like this if that was the case. Let me share this with you. This is Ezra, again, a prophet Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. You can read the whole thing on your own if you'd like, but here's what it is. Ezra, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, for our little ones and all our possessions. Okay, now let me paint a picture here. They're, in, they're up in, uh, in the territory of Cyrus, right? They're up there in Persia, Babylon. And they've been released, and they want to head back to their homelands. Now, to head back to their homelands, they've got to travel across a wasteland, a vast area of desert and, and unpopulated areas. And the problem is there are roving tribes of Bedouins and of different thieves and bandits who would be set upon them, and it would be a difficult trip. They weren't just getting on a bus to head home. They had a long journey, and they needed some help. So they're going to pray, but here's the problem. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought out our God concerning this manner, and he listened to our entreaty. Here's the picture. He's, Ezra has been telling Cyrus, our God is strong. Our God will smite anyone who stands in his way. We are God's favored people. Our God is so much stronger than all your gods. And finally, they say, okay, go home. Remember? Essentially, go home. But now he's like, well, I'd really like some protection along the way but I can't go back to the king and ask for protection because I just got done bragging about how big our God was. How real is that? We see, this, we see this, this man, this prophet, good man of God, who understands the Lord, who understands the word for the Lord, and he's still like, I understand that we're God's chosen, but I'd feel a little better if I had some army with me, but I can't ask for it because I've already told him how good God is. So that's that's one, this fast that he proclaims. But it's for a time and a reason. It's not a program. But we find all these other fasts, one in the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, the tenth months. These were all fasts to either mourn or remember something specific, significant that happened to them in their, in their history and in their recent history. Various events, the sacking of Jerusalem was one, The burning of the temple was another one. The beginning of the exile was another one. And they were fasting and mourning these events. The one in the fifth month was the most significant because that really, it it mourned the burning of Solomon's temple. Now, that one actually still exists. Uh, Hebrews call it Tisha B'Av. And it's, it's considered the saddest day in all of Jewish history. Because not only are they talking about the, the burning of the temple, but they've added on things like the Holocaust and things like that that they remember, Crusader massacres, Roman massacres, and they bundle them all into this one, uh, one event where they mourn and they fast. But here's the problem. They had taken these things, and rather than it become a one-time event, they have decided this is where we're living, Remember how I said, don't focus on the obstacle, focus on where you want to go? They were entirely entrenched in in lifting up and celebrating, if you were, the bad things that happened to them. Rather than the good things that God has done, God's deliverance, he has brought us through these things. He He has forced a pagan king to release us from captivity God is so good. But rather than to focus on that aspect of it, they're focusing on the bad things that had happened to them. And they continued to do this. So this is where Bethel is specifically. The men of Bethel, they come down to ask because they have continued this fast, not only for the time that they were in Babylon in captivity, but since they were released. They were delivered. They came home. They're rebuilding their homes but they're continuing these fasts. And so they travel down to ask, do we need to keep doing this? Like, we've been doing it. Do we need to keep doing it? And here's the response. The Lord questions their motives for doing it in the first place. Why did you even do this in the first place? So it brings us to the first of the four messages. And these are all fairly short, so stay with me. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, was it actually me? Was it actually for me that you fasted? The Lord just asked them that flat out. When you did all these things, was that for me? It's important. It's something that they need to think about. That word mourned in there is a Hebrew word, safad. And safad means to wail, and lament, but specifically to wail and lament for show, okay? It is a very expressive, like you wouldn't do that in private. there be no need. The point is to be out in front of people. We see that same concept. It's ritual without meaning, and we see that same thing when Jesus himself is walking the Via Dolorosa, and we see these women called the Daughters of Jerusalem who come out to mourn and wail and weep, they're professionals. They're professional mourners who have been hired to come out and lend a certain significance to the event. It was something that they did all the time. You can read Luke 23 for a little bit more on that story. But it's ritual without meaning, without significance. And it's certainly not anything that someone had told them to do. They simply do it because it feels like something we're supposed to do. How many of us in our Christian lives do things because we just feel like it's something we're supposed to do? Or maybe something we were told a long time ago to do that we're holding on to because it worked then, so I'm going to keep doing it now. We try to make these programmed in things. If I do this, then this will happen. And that's something that as humans we just want to latch on. I have figured out the key. If I do this, then I get this. And we want to grab onto that with all of our hearts, but that's not the way God works. God is not a program. No one had told them to keep fasting and mourning. They had been set free, but they continued to live in this mournful, captive mindset. Just like us. We have been set free, but we'd rather focus on the things that are holding us down than on the freedom that we have. It's just human nature. We want to pay a price for something that was never asked of us. We feel like we have to work for it in order for it to have value. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 6 says, When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? This is just a rhetorical question saying, Hey, when you eat and you have these feasts and you're eating and you're drinking, who are you doing that for? If you're doing that just for your own entertainment and you're doing that for yourself because it's fun and joyous, you're celebrating that, and then you want to mourn for me, that's not where he wants their hearts to be. So let's move on to the second of the four messages. Remember I told you they were short, so you've got to stay with me. Second of the four messages, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, We have this on screen. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. In other words, this is all I ask of you. Why do you add on all these other things to make it harder than it needs to be? That's the whole point, but... As a sidebar, that is the crux of the whole reason that the gospel message of Christ is so difficult for many people to grasp. People don't want to think it can be just as easy as grace freely given by a God who loves us. What do I have to do? Just give me my to-do list and I'll work on it. But this is the core of why so many struggle. It just seems too easy. Let me give you an example. This isn't strictly out of the teaching that, that we're doing now, but this is an example of how this works, and I love this. You ladies who are part of Gabe's uh, Bible study who are in 2 uh, Kings, you're in Kings, this is from 2 Kings chapter 5. It might be familiar to you. This is the story of Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian commander. Okay, so he's not, he's not a follower of the God of Israel. He's not an Israelite, right? He is, we'd call him a pagan. His name is Naaman. Scripture tells us that he is a mighty warrior, okay? He is a man of some stature and some substance. And the king, uh, king of Aram knows that he, he's his guy. He's won battles. He's, he's a real guy, but he's got one problem, a couple problems. But his main problem, he's got leprosy. He has leprosy, and he's desperately searching for something that's going to cure his leprosy before he dies of it. It's hard to be a good warrior if you've got leprosy. So he's searching around, and and long story, but you can read again 2 Kings 5, he gets wind of this prophet, this prophet named Elisha who's down in Judah, and this prophet can heal him. He's been told that that's how it works. So he goes to Naaman, goes to the king of Aram and he tells him, Hey, I want to make this pilgrimage down to try and find this prophet because I think he can heal me. So the king of Aram says, Absolutely, you're you're my guy. I need you to be strong. So let's get you healed. So he sends him along with a whole bunch of treasure. Okay, lays out silver and, and wine and all these kind of things, and he's gonna send him along with this treasure to go find the prophet Elisha so that he can be healed. Okay, sounds great. So he starts heading down. Remember I told you, it's not a matter of getting on a bus. It's a a process. So he starts heading down there. Now, Elisha hears, whether it's from the Lord or from people who have seen it, we don't know exactly how, but he knows that he's coming down to meet him. Okay, he knows that Naaman's coming down to meet him. So he decides this, rather than to make him come all the way to me, I'm going to send a messenger to go tell him what he needs to know, okay? So Elisha does that. Elisha sends out a messenger to meet Naaman kind of halfway, and he says this. The messenger just says this. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored, and you will be healed of your leprosy. Sounds wonderful, right? So Naaman has gone down there. He's hoping that this prophet will see him that he'll be able to find him, that he'll see him at all, and that he'll be able to to heal him. And instead, he doesn't even have to go all the way down there. He's being met halfway. Here's all you got to do. Bathe in the river seven times, and you're good to go. Now, you'd think Naaman would be happy, right? Human nature. I don't even have to tell you. Was Naaman happy? We don't even have to know the story just to know. In general, human nature... It didn't work out like he had planned in his mind it was going to work out. It was too easy. He's not happy about this at all. Scripture says, Naaman became angry and stalked away. He's mad. And he says, I thought he would certainly come out to meet me. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call in the name of the Lord God and heal me. In other words, I traveled all this way to bathe in some stupid river It can't be that easy. It's got to be, there's got to be some ceremony and circumstance and other things that go along with it. It can't just be as easy as the Lord declaring healing, right? Can't be that easy. And Naaman's no different. But his friends, his officers that are with him, try to reason with him. 2 Kings 5, 13, 14. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River, dipped himself seven times, and as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Awesome. Totally healed everything that he wanted. Just not the way he thought it was going to work out. So what he decides, okay, he, he's praising, and you can read more about that story again, 2 Kings 5. It's an amazing story. He is excited. He's praising the God of Israel and, he, and, and the, the inferences that he converts. He recognizes how powerful this God is. But he's got all this treasure, and certainly this can't be free. I have to pay for it. So he tracks down Elisha and says, here, I've got all this silver. I've got all this stuff I brought with me to give to you for healing me. And Elisha says, nah, keep it. Don't need it. That's not what this is about. Naaman is is totally confused, just like we would be. You mean it's free? And he's just like we today. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around that. So here's what Naaman does. He says, okay, well, this worked. Meeting meeting Elisha and his instructions in the Jordan all worked. So here's what I'm going to do. So he goes back home, but not before he takes a load of dirt from this ground with him. Totally an indication of how, if it worked in this place, I'm going to take it with me so I can recreate that thing back at home. We want to recreate those things that we see work in our lives. We'd rather not have to bother the Lord by asking again and again. We just go, well, it worked once, so I'm going to do it again. Up to the point where he wants to bring some dirt home so that he can recreate that at home. Let's move on. The question that I have, though, the message of God's love for us is so simple, but why do we try to add things to the work that Jesus did for us on the cross? Jesus did all of the work. Why do we want and insist, in many ways, to add on to that Rather than just to accept the simplicity of what he did. So let's go back to the delegation from Bethel. So they're coming down. They're reminded of what happened when their fathers failed to listen. Remember, the whole reason that they live in this desolate land and they're even going through this is because their fathers didn't listen to what other prophets had told them years ago. Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. It goes on to say how he scattered them to the winds and the land became desolate. This is the price that they're paying now trying to rebuild their lands after what had happened through the disobedience of their fathers? So you would think that they would be a little more attentive to what they're being told. Moving on to the third of the four messages. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. That's the entirety of that third message, but let's look at it. Despite all of their failures, all of our failures, God was, is, and always will be passionately in love with you. Passionately in love with you. That's the picture. I'm exceedingly jealous. With great wrath, I am jealous for her. Now, that word wrath doesn't mean anything to do with anger. Picture picture a, a husband and wife, and they're married, and one of them is adulterous, okay? Picture that. You're only angry because you love them so much. If you didn't love them with all your heart, you wouldn't be angry over that, but you are so angry, but you love them so much. Have you ever had that? I love you so much and I'm so mad at you. This is where the Lord is. He loves us so much, but he is so jealously angry at those things that get in between our relationship with him. Those things that we allow to get in between. It's this concept of angry love. In the coming day of the Lord that refers to here all throughout Zechariah, the day of the Lord, the millennial reign of Christ back on the earth, when Jesus himself is the one in charge, bringing peace once and for all in that day the distraction or leading up to that day the distraction is going to be the antichrist but for today it's all these things that we bring into our lives and allow them to take our attention away from a deeper relationship with the lord not that all these things are bad but are we elevating them to an equal status equal footing with our relationship with the lord that's what we need to be aware of to go back to the marriage analogy Their marriage or our marriage to the Lord should make others want that blessing for themselves. That's what our relationship with the Lord should do. It should be something that's attractive and magnetic for others to look at us and our lives and our relationship with the Lord and say, I want that. Bottom line, that's what it should be. We'll get back to that in a minute. The Lord now takes the next several verses and lays out his promises for them. You can read these on your own if you want. They're in Zechariah 8, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Verse 8 on the screen. And I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Verses 12 and 13. For there will be peace for the seed, and the vine will yield its fruit. Blessing upon blessing that God wants to pour out onto us. Now, what do we have to do to receive this? It's very simple, and he lays it out in order here. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16, 17. These are the things which you should do take note any time where the lord says this is what you should do he's kind of taking the gray area and the interpretation out of it these are the things which you should do speak the truth to one another judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates judge with truth and judgment for peace It's not to prove your way, it's to make peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another, and do not love perjury, which is lying. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. He lays it out pretty simply and pretty straightforward. Now let's get into the last of these four messages. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 18-19. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, The fast of the 7th and the fast of the 10th months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Leave that up there, if you would, for just a minute. He's saying, stop mourning. Continue these things that you're doing, but not a mourning mindset, not a what has been done to you mindset. Start having the mindset of what I have done for you and what I will promise to continue to do for you. It's a mindset. But at the end of this, did you catch the key to all of this? It's all wrapped up in those last five words. So, love, truth, and peace. That sounds simple, right? Love, truth, and peace. Here's how that looks. I want to illustrate how that love of truth and peace looks in our lives. And I want to do that by asking some questions. Is a marriage full of bickering going to make others want that for themselves? Okay, question. I don't even have to give you the answer. The second question, is grumbling and mourning about your lot in life going to make others wonder how they can get themselves some of that? Do people look at you and say, how can you go through what you're going through, which is same or worse than I'm going through, and yet you have peace and joy in your hearts? Because that's what's magnetic. That's what people look at and they say, I want that. How do you live that way? Or do you live your life the same way that everybody else does? Mourning and fasting and bickering and complaining about what's been done to you. Now granted, we could all sit here and out there, wherever you are, there's plenty to look at and say, these things are being done to me right now. Do you focus on that? And if you focus on that, you are no different than those who don't profess Christ as their Savior. We have a hope that there is something beyond our earthly circumstance, and that's where our focus needs to be. And that focus Enables us to have peace and joy in the midst of a storm. That is what is attractive. And then the last thing why should loving truth and peace be our goal? Simple, straightforward answer. In order to make the gospel of Jesus, and more importantly, its fruit in our lives, attractive to those who desperately need salvation. That happens through you. And if your life looks the same as everyone else's, Christian and non Christian alike, why would anybody want to come to Christ the final 3 verses really quickly we're wrapping it up here final 3 verses give us a glimpse of what our faithfulness will result in zechariah chapter 8 verses 20 23 thus says the lord of hosts it will yet be that peoples will come even the inhabitants of many cities people from all over coming the inhabitants of one will go to another saying Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many people and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. So people will come from all over, not not just Jews, not just the people of Israel, but people will come from all over, surrounding nations, pagan nations, and they'll want what's going on there. They'll want the favor of the Lord. Last verse, 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In other words, it's not about a specific ratio, but it says, for every Jew who is God's favor, there will be 10 more from nations all surrounding. Just saying, if I can just grab onto what you have, because what you have is something that I want, And mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing is not what anybody wants. That's how that works in our lives. We have heard that God is with you. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. So I have one last question for you. Is the way you live your life making more disciples or skeptics? Is it softening hearts towards the gospel message of Jesus or hardening hearts, to the gospel of Jesus. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord God, that you that your heart is for us, that you love us passionately, that you are zealous and you are jealous for us, and you are passionately angry about anything that steps in the way of our relationship with you. So, Lord, right now, I personally repent of anything that I have allowed to come in between my relationship with you, anything that I have elevated in importance over my relationship with you. Father, I ask that you just take those things and you just wash them away like dust. What I want is you. What I want is your promises, and those promises are not dependent on the storm that whirls around me. Those promises are dependent on keeping my eyes focused on you. So Father, help me. Help me to avoid the distractions and to focus on you. I am so thankful for what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, and Lord, I accept his work of atonement, and Lord, I repent of adding my human attempts earning a relationship with you. I repent of that. And Lord, I just want what you freely offer to me. I accept that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're out there, if you're at home, grab your communion elements. If you want to celebrate communion with us, if you're here, we have them on the table in the back. If you want to celebrate that with us. But let's remember what Jesus did for us. It's so much more than just remember a guy who did a thing. When you take the body of Christ, broken for you, the body broken, bruised, and battered, in order to pay the price that you deserve, but he took it upon himself because what he wanted is what Father God wants, and that is relationship with you. And if you accept what he did on the cross for you, take the body. And the blood of Christ simply seals everything. The blood shed for you by his wounds, by his sacrifice then, the blood of Christ covers us. And Father God no longer sees us through all of our failures but he sees us righteous and clean in his sight. And it's that righteousness that we reflect to the world. And so if you accept your role in that, you accept his work in that, and take the blood. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.
0: your son.